It's time for Growing Texas Olives, the only podcast made specifically for you, the Texas olive grower. And until somebody shows me otherwise, I still believe this is the only podcast in the world fully dedicated to just talking how to grow olives. Thanks for being here today. I am your host, Stephen Yanak. I'm glad that you're here. I'm very happy to be here. Today is the 9th of September, 2021. This will be episode six of Growing Texas Olives podcast. Are y'all still enjoying that intro music? (laughs) I sure am. I just wanted to thank Jay Schmidt once again for that music. Uh, Again, he wrote, composed, played, and recorded this, this music just for us. So what a treat, right? Thanks again, Jay Schmidt. Today for episode six, I'm going to continue what I've been doing, uh, reviewing chapters out of this uh, second edition olive production manual from the University of California. This is a 2015 publication. I suggest you you go out and get it if you're interested. And chapter five is uh, site selection, preparation, tree spacing and tree planting and establishment. Today I'm doing something a little bit different. As I said in the last episode, I'm actually on campus at Texas A&M. I've come back for grad school, uh, back on campus for the first time in eight years, taking classes. Uh, And actually, it's made it a little bit difficult for me to record these podcasts as I'm driving back and forth. I do stay up here two nights a week. Uh, but it's just I don't have my my little recording set up like I do back back home in my office. Luckily, yesterday I found out that in in the library on campus, they actually have a couple of recording studios. So this is kind of a dream. This is what I've been hoping for all along is this. uh, They have here these soundproofed rooms with with the softened acoustics, uh, professional recording equipment, nice computers, nice microphone, nice headphones. So that's where I'm at today. I'm hoping the, the good quality comes through in the recording for you. Also, because I'm on campus uh, and I'm I'm over here, I forgot to bring the book with me, <laughs> the Olive Production Manual. I actually forgot to bring it with me, and it's about a 20-minute uh, endeavor to get across campus back to my truck, and, and so I just can't, uh, I'm not going to have the book today. I've got class in about an hour and a half, so I actually last week started this episode, uh, so I actually have gone through that, this chapter five in the book several times. Um, so I, I know what they say, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through kind of what they say here. But to be honest, I really think that they don't provide enough information, enough detail in this Chapter 5 on site selection, preparation, and, and uh, tree spacing and planting. I think it's about a four- or five-page chapter, and really it probably deserves ten pages. There's just so much to consider, so much to know about site selection and preparation especially. So... I'm going to kind of go through what what I remember them talking about, and then I'm going to add a lot of my own advice, a lot of my own uh, guidance from my own experience going around, seeing many different sites where orchards have been planted. Uh, So I'm going to supplement what they have with a lot of my own experience uh, and a a lot of information that's specific to olives in Texas, right? That's why we're here, is for you to have specific information on how to grow olives in Texas. All right, I like the way that they start this. Uh, I like the way that they start this chapter. They start off by saying, because orchard establishment is so expensive and costly, it is very important 
that the orchard reaches economic bearing as soon as possible after planting. Proper planning, site selection, ground preparation, tree spacing, training, and establishment is critical to attaining this objective. And I love that they start off like that because that's what we tell everybody when we start talking about, okay, so you, you're a prospective grower. You're thinking about starting a farm, especially a fruit uh, orchard. We want to do, we want to start early. We want to do everything as perfectly as we can so that these trees establish quickly and get up to producing fruit as soon as possible. That's when you start seeing returns, right? And until you start producing fruit, it's just money that you're spending. And we want to have money starting to return to the orchard. So, yeah, you can plant an olive orchard, uh, do minimal preparation, minimal uh, management on it. And, yeah, maybe most of the trees will survive and establish. And, yeah, maybe five, six years down the road, they'll start producing some fruit. But that's not maximizing your returns and getting a, a quick return. So that's what I'm trying to be here to tell you how to do is to is to do everything as perfectly as possible so that we experience these this fruitfulness and experience the returns on our investment as soon as possible. So we're really, I've talked about this with other growers too, we're really reaching for this level of perfection. And in order to do this really when we think about establishing an olive orchard, the planning and the and the, the preparation really should start at least one year in advance, maybe 18 months in advance. But let's first talk about site selection. Uh, the first thing they talked about in the book was temperatures. So choosing a site for the olive orchard based on the, the climate of the area. They say that 15 degrees Fahrenheit is a kind of a critical temperature below which trees may be severely damaged and or killed. And we certainly experienced some of that severe damage uh, this past February with the with the historic freeze that we experienced. They also say to consider winter temperatures. So olive trees need this need. Uh, they're they're sort of particular particular about their about the climate about the temperatures they experience during winter. Olives need to grow through this period of what we call vernalization. And vernalization is a process that that leads to the flowering and fruiting of the tree. If we do not have these vernalization conditions, then it's extremely likely that the tree will not flower and it will just remain vegetative. So they say winter temperatures that fluctuate between about 35 and 65 degrees is ideal for vernalization of olives. And in most areas of the olive producing regions of the world, that's what we get is uh, that's what they have are, are mild, consistent, nice, cool temperatures. Yeah, sometimes below freezing, sometimes a little bit above 65, uh, but that's what we're looking for as far as climate. They go on to say that cold and wet or hot and dry are bad conditions for flowering. So think about flowering, olives flower uh, early spring, somewhere, depending on location, somewhere around the middle of March to the middle of April. So think about the climate and the weather at your proposed location during that time. We don't want it to be excessively cold and wet or excessively hot and dry during the flowering time. That can lead to a reduction of, of pollination and a reduction in fruit set. So at this point, you're probably wondering, well, where are the best sites in Texas? What, what area of the state uh, should we try to grow olives in? And I'm not going to tell you that I know without a doubt uh, what exactly is the best place in Texas to grow olives. Uh, but I do also obviously have some experience. I've been around 
orchards in every part of the state just about um, and, and seen how they've done. And I want to combine that here then with some with some research data, some actual Texas research. So back in the, I think it was mid-80s, uh, there was a, a master's student at Texas A&M. His name was James O. Denny, James Denny. Uh, I do, if you're really interested in olives and really, really interested in the science, I do recommend you go look up his thesis and read it. It's it's actually quite interesting. So what, what James Denny did was compare, um, they did some real early computer modeling, I remember in the 80s, and they, they collected weather data, uh, like 15 years of weather data from different places around the Mediterranean and olive producing regions in California, as well as Baja, Mexico and other places. And then they compared that that data to to Texas weather data, uh, Texas weather conditions. They looked at the the average maximum and minimum temperatures uh, during winter, say 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 October to April. Uh, they looked at the frequency of damaging temperatures, both uh, winter freeze, spring frost, and spring excessive spring heat. And then they also looked at uh, days of vernalization. And they had special parameters that they came up with to decide what exactly means a day of, of vernalization. And so then they assigned a, a damage index based on these damaging temperatures, freezes, frosts, and, and excessive heat. And they kind of combined all this data to say, yeah, there's, a, there's an area of Texas that closely mimics the weather conditions of, of olive-producing regions around the world. They did not say that we have absolute perfect weather conditions somewhere in the state that absolutely perfectly matches up to to olive-producing regions of the world. Our main biggest problem that they, they say, or James Denny says many times, is that the main limitation for olives in Texas is damaging temperatures, primarily freezes. So what are the best sites? Well, they, they had uh, certain cities that, that, they, that they listed uh, this is just where they, they collected the weather data from, from these different cities. And so in order, these were kind of the best sites according to their data. Austin, Del Rio, Lufkin, Goliad, Carrizo Springs, Columbus, Uvalde. Does that kind of draw a picture for you uh, on the map of Texas? And I'll link this study, uh, this paper here in the show notes so you can go look at it. It's got some really nice... Uh, graphics and drawings on it, and it kind of outlines this Texas potential olive production zone. It's it's sort of the middle of the state and, and encompasses all those cities that I just talked about. I'm kind of surprised to hear Lufkin on there, but uh, we do have some orchards up, not quite to Lufkin, but in that area, and, you know, they've they've made some fruit. They've done pretty well. Uh, of course, they, they experienced some, some freeze damage like the rest of us. They said in, in these these sites and these, especially these top three, four, five sites, uh, the frequency of a killing freeze that would kill the tree to the ground at these sites was about once every thirty years. Well, that's kind of that's kind of hopeful, right? <laughs> we just went through one of these extreme freezes that killed trees to the ground in a lot of areas, and yeah, I think we're all hoping that uh, it's just going to be it's going to be another thirty years before that ever happens again. There was another researcher. Uh, Nasir Malik, I think is his. I think is how you say the name. He did some research, and this was back in the in the two thousands and and twenty teens. Uh, but he was in Westlaco, a researcher with uh, Agriculture Research Service with USDA. Um, he did some similar work, and he basically had the same kind of findings. This this middle 
middle section of Texas, kind of below the Balcones Escarpment, right below the hill country, uh, up and kind of curves up to Austin and then heads heads northeast again towards Lufkin, um, Nacogdoches. That's kind of the real far northern limit. Uh, but he also said along the Texas coast, along the coastline shows uh, shows good weather conditions. And in fact, there are olive trees supposedly in Galveston that have been there for several decades that produce fruit sort of reliably. And of course, you know, the, the coastline, yeah, yeah that's uh, the temperatures there are moderated by the Gulf, by the Gulf of Mexico. And so, yeah, uh, they, they tend to escape some of these extremes in temperature. But like we just talked about, uh, they, they do have the the offsetting risk of, of hurricanes and excessive moisture. So, you know, and, and the olive industry has kind of worked itself out to where this is kind of where these sites, uh, that general area that I'm talking about, that's basically where most of the productive olive orchards are remaining today. There's people that tried it up towards Dallas, and they obviously froze and they gave up that far. There's people that have tried it. Um, we've got a plot down in Westlaco in the far southern tip of Texas in the Rio Grande Valley, those trees do wonderfully. They grow fine, uh, but they they don't flower and fruit reliably. There's not enough winter, cold winter temperatures to to achieve that vernalization that uh, convinces the tree that it needs to flower and set fruit. They go on to say that think about late summer rain. We really don't like to have excessive late summer rains where we're going to plant olives. And they talk about it in terms of disease pressure. So things like olive knot, verticillium wilt, um, other other diseases that really rely on this, this wet weather pattern. What they don't mention, that I'm really surprised that they don't mention, is that late summer rain, like like right about now, the end of August, the 1st of September, that's about about harvest time, right? So if we're getting, and I say late summer rain, I guess late summer in Texas could be uh, September, October, really, but I'm talking more end of July through the month of August and then into the first of September. If we, if your proposed orchard site receives it, receives excessive rainfall during those periods, not only are we worried about disease pressure, but more than that, I'm worried about harvest and oil content because that's what we're talking about, right? Is is farming olives for the production of olive oil. And a tree, an olive tree that has a crop of fruit on it, if it receives excessive water, excessive rain, or excessive soil moisture, that's essentially going to wash out the oil in the olive fruit. Uh, it's going to be harder to extract the oil. The oil quality is going to be lower. So we really don't like to have consistent excessive rains in the in the late summer period as we approach harvest. That's really not ideal. Realize also that Excessive rain during this potential harvest period not only affects the oil, but just may may keep you from getting into the orchard. Uh, I, I talked with some growers uh, in far southeast Texas, and they said, yeah, the last three years we hung a pretty good crop of fruit on the trees. But for the last three years, when it came time to harvest, it would not stop raining. We could not get equipment into the orchard to actually harvest the fruit um, so, so think about that, uh, especially if you're looking at a mechanical harvest, uh, this high density orchard setup where you're going to have a mechanical harvester come in. I mean, those things are heavy. Uh, yeah, they have good tractor tires, but, uh, they can't go into a wet sop- sloppy soup of, of soil. Uh, that's going to just cause headaches the entire time. So 
for the last three years, they hadn't been able to get in harvest, even though they had good fruit. And so that's 100% loss, three out of three years. So uh, another point to think about when we talk about excessive rain uh, in late summer. Also look at the topography. If you've got a certain piece of land, you already own it, Maybe it's not a perfectly flat piece of land. Think about cold air drainage. We just talked about a while ago, low temperatures that can damage the olive tree. I've seen great examples of this already in Texas olive orchards where it's planted on the side of a slope, but it's all planted all the way into the bottom of the, of the little valley or the bottom of the low area on their property. Well, those trees in the bottom, on the lower elevations, they receive more freeze damage. In fact, a lot of those are dead in this case that I'm thinking about. And the trees that are on top of the hill, well, they receive some freeze damage too, but they're alive and they're regrowing faster. They're in better health overall. And I'm not talking about a huge difference. In this specific case that I'm thinking of, it's maybe 10 or 15 feet difference in elevation. Not a whole lot of difference. But that small difference in elevation can make a large difference in survival versus not. Okay, soil. Considering soils when establishing or picking a site for olive orchards. Soil is critical. Of course, olives are adaptable uh, to different types of soil. Uh, They can grow in in coarse, sandy soils, and they can grow in a little bit heavier, uh, more more fine-textured, maybe loam or clay loam soils. But they really don't like clay soils. They really don't like to have uh, a very heavy, very dense soil. They can survive there, but the problem with those heavy, dense soils is a lack of good water drainage and a lack of oxygen availability to the roots. So drainage is probably the most critical soil aspect to consider when when selecting an olive orchard site. Drainage, both internal soil drainage and surface drainage. So surface drainage meaning like, you know, you don't want low spots in the field that tend to hold water. We want a nice, uh, an ideally ideal situation. We'd have a nice gentle slope that doesn't cause erosion but does help get the water out of there when we do have excessive rains. Olives are adaptable to different soil pH. That's the next big uh, factor consider, to consider. They can survive in, in low pH environments, so at the acidic side of the pH scale from about, oh, about 5.5 at the lowest, probably better from 6 to 7. That's the acid side of the scale. 7, of course, is neutral. Uh, but they do find that olives tend to grow a little bit better in in alkaline soils. So soils that are about 7 to about 8, maybe up to 8.5 on, on pH. Okay, back to drainage for, for a second. Uh, how, do you, how do you figure out what kind of soil is there? What's the drainage like? What's the pH? Well, if you're shopping for an orchard location, you know, you're, you're looking to buy a piece of land, there's things that you can do before you ever set foot or on a property or before you even talk to the, the sales, the realtor, whoever it is, there's things that you can do to find out about that soil way in advance. And that's the soil survey. Uh, USDA has a, has a soil survey website. You can go on there and, and look around and find your location, find your proposed location and look up the soil types, and it'll tell you all everything that they know about that soil type. The type of drainage, uh, is it well-drained or is it poorly drained, uh, what the pH should be, the depth of the soil, whether there's going to be any hard pan or rocks in the soil. So you can get that information online. I really like the website called, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, oh, it's called Soil Web. Soil Web. Just uh, 
do an internet search for soil web. Uh, this, this website is developed by the University of California. It uses the exact same soil surveys and soil data that comes from USDA. I just find that it's in a little bit more user-friendly format, a little bit easier to use the map and find, uh, find the different soils and learn about them. So soil web, do an internet search for soil web. One major problem that we've had regarding soils and drainage in Texas is root rot. There's two types of, generally two main types of root rot that we deal with, and that is cotton root rot. The other one is Phytophthora root rot. They're a little bit different um, in their in, in in their management, but basically both are exacerbated by poor drainage. So again, the importance of drainage to avoid root rot in the first place. Once you think you might have a site picked out, uh, you want to evaluate that site and actually get on site and do some do some tests to really find out how the drainage actually performs, uh, because sometimes you don't know everything just from these web soil surveys. Uh, you can get on site, and what I'd recommend is a test hole. Go dig a hole about 10 inches wide, about 32 inches deep. Fill that sucker with water. And you don't want to do this when it's, you know, been raining for a, for a long time. If the soil is excessively wet, you don't want to do it during a drought when the soil is excessively dry. You'd like to do this somewhere where you have moderate soil moisture. So you got your hole dug, you fill it with water, and then you see how long it takes to drain. If it drains within eight hours, you've got excellent soil drainage, internal soil drainage. Uh, if it's about 12 to 18 hours, that's still pretty good, pretty good soil drainage. 24 hours, well, we're starting to get kind of marginal. And, and over 24 hours, I, I think you really, really need to consider if this is the best site. 24, 36, even up to 48 hours. If it's 36 to 48 hours and that's, that hole is still not completely drained, this is not the site to plant olives. Uh, it, could you plant olives? Could you potentially grow an olive tree in that site? Yeah, yeah, probably so. You could make it survive. But this is not a site where you're going to maximize potential profitability and potential return on your investment. So, again, drainage, extremely critical. I'm really surprised in the in the production manual they don't mention berms. I guess... I guess it makes sense, sort of. From what I know about California, their soils are typically, typically fairly deep and typically well drained, and so they and and obviously they don't get a lot of rain like some areas of Texas do, and so they don't have these drainage issues. They probably don't plant a lot of orchards up on berms. From what I've seen in Texas, especially if we're on a marginal soil, I really want that orchard up on a berm, especially if we're in an area that that tends to receive some heavy rainfall amounts. So consider a berm. The The final shape of the berm can vary, but generally you're looking for about, about 8 to 10 to 12 inches, around 10 to 12 inches really in height of the berm, final height, and somewhere around 32, 36 inches wide with a nice uh, slope on the side as well so that you don't have that, that berm just eroding all the time. That's kind of what we're looking for. If your proposed olive orchard site passes all of these tests and it looks to be be good up to now, the next thing you, you can do is take a soil test. Have the soil analyzed. Have it tested for pH, nutrient content. Have it tested for salinity. Olives are pretty darn uh, tolerant of salinity in the soil, salinity in the water, but it's just good to know beforehand what you're what you're getting into test for sodium as well i don't know that there's a lot of sodic soils in texas but that can be a real problem so 
just very good insurance. It's a cheap test, about about twelve to twenty bucks for for a soil test, and it's just cheap insurance to know what you've got before any money goes into this project or any more money goes into this project. Some other things to think about: think about the past past use of this piece of land. Uh, was it in was it in hay production, especially? Uh, that's one that I would really that would really throw some red flags for me. Hay production, we often use. Uh, herbicides that have residual properties. So herbicides that stay in the soil for a period of time and stay active in the soil and can be picked up by roots. So consider the past land use. We don't want to go planting into maybe something that's been sprayed recently. Uh, but if that is the perfect site, that's okay. We can still we can still plant something there. We just need to know that it's there, know that there's possibility of residual herbicides, and know that we probably need to wait uh, 18 to 24 months before we put a tree in the ground in that place. So think about past land use. And a couple other things that, I, that they didn't mention at all in the, in the book that I think needs to be considered. Not all of these are super critical, but think about, uh, think about long term. What's your proximity to your market? Are you in the middle of nowhere, or can you get your product to market uh, in a reasonable fashion? Think about the availability of labor, and this is a huge one, especially nowadays. I went on trips, of course, I told you, going around the state, talking to olive growers and looking at our trials and looking at olive orchards. Everywhere I go, every single person said, I cannot find enough help. I cannot get enough labor. So really something to consider there. Are you close or can you... Can you get people to work? Are there people around willing to work? Can you get the can you have that? What about your proximity to an olive mill or are you going to have your own? Uh you know when we talk about producing olive oil, the the best quality oil is produced when we take the fruit, we harvest the fruit and we get it milled as soon as possible. Really within 24 hours is is what we're looking for. And, and I know orchards that can go from fruit on the tree to oil in the oil in a container in less than two hours. Now that is primo there, right? That that's having a mill on site um, and doing everything all at once. That's how you really capture that freshness. That's how you really capture the best quality. So if you're somewhere and you're five hours from a from a mill, well, that's something something to consider, right? Okay. Think about animal pests. They don't really mention this at all. Uh, I suppose uh, the orchards I've seen in California, they don't have fences around them. But darn near every orchard in Texas that I've seen has to have a game-proof or deer-proof fence. We just have so many white-tailed deer in so many part, so much of the state, uh, and they love olive trees. They really do. Uh, so think about fencing. you got to have a fence almost guaranteed. You need to have a fence. Think about hogs. Of course, if you put up a good game fence to keep deer out, usually that's going to keep out the feral hogs. They're pretty much all over Texas as well. They can really cause some severe damage. So think about hogs. Think about gophers. You know, gophers live in the soil and they feed on roots. Uh, Moles, not so much. You need to know if you have gophers or moles. Moles are more insectivores. Gophers are more herbivores and they eat roots of plants, roots of trees. Uh, so think about that. That may be something that you want to control before a tree ever goes in the ground is uh, getting rid of those gophers. Finally, think about neighboring farms. Uh, who's your neighbor? What are they doing? What might they be spraying throughout the year for their crops? And would that potentially affect you? I don't know of any any 
uh, particular instance in Texas where this has been a problem, where we've had drift or overspray from a neighboring farm that's harmed olives. Uh, I don't know of any cases of that, but again, something to consider. Okay, I'm going to talk site prep uh, sort of quickly here, and then that's going to be it for the episode. I'm not going to be able to get through the entire chapter here in one episode. It's just too much to know, really. So we'll we'll finish up this chapter in the next episode. But site prep. As I said before, site prep should probably really start about 18 months in advance. And I have a quote here out of the book. It says, proper site preparation is essential to the ultimate profitability, profitability of the olive orchard. Site prep is essential to the ultimate profitability of the olive orchard. And that's absolutely true. We go in and do a halfway kind of job, throw some trees in the ground. Well, you can expect kind of halfway thrown around uh, success or profitability. So they go through, they have different steps. I'm going to go through their steps and I've added some extra steps of my own. So they say first thing is leveling of the ground, second is deep tillage, third is establishment of berms, fourth is the establishment of the irrigation system, fifth is considered trellising or stakes. Uh, also, we talked about fence, and then before planting, if you got your site prepared, think about a cover crop. Leveling, uh, not, I'm not saying that you got to have a perfectly flattened level like we said before. You'd like to have a little slope to the ground to have some good surface drainage. Really, what we're talking about here is filling any lo- filling in any low spots. Again, got to have good drainage. We don't want to plant trees in a spot that holds water. So that's what we're talking about. Filling in the low spots, maybe taking out some of the, uh, the rough undulations of the ground, kind of smoothing it out. Think again, you're going to be spending a lot of time in the tractor or, or in some other machine going across this orchard. You want to have it, you know, reasonably smooth so that you can get around without tearing up the equipment. Second, they talk about deep tillage, and I do think this is probably necessary for just about everyone, Uh, but you can check if you need to have deep tillage. Basically, what we're looking for is the presence of a hard pan underground or or big rocks that are underground. Uh, Olives don't need excessively deep and fertile soil, but they do need rooting area. Uh, The book here says they need about four feet of good undisturbed or uninterrupted, unimpeded topsoil. I mean, of course, four foot would be great. I think about three feet of depth is is sufficient for an olive tree. So how do you know if you have a hard pan or compaction in the soil? Well, once again, that, that web soil survey or soil web, that soil survey has information. Is that a typically a, a soil that has compaction issues? The next best thing to do is just, just get in there uh, and dig a hole. That's the best way. Get a shovel, try to dig three, four feet down. Uh, usually it's fairly fairly soft on top, but if you get a 6 inches or 12 inches, 18 inches down and hit a hard layer, then you know not only that there is a presence of a compaction layer, but secondly, you know where that is and how deep you need to go with your tillage to alleviate that compaction. So I'm in the editing process now, and I, I wanted to add uh, step 2.5 to this, something I forgot to mention. Once we've got the ground leveled, we got it worked up, before we shape our beds, before we put up berms, if we're doing that, uh, which, I, as I said, most of us probably should, or as I will say, most of us probably should use berms to facilitate better drainage. Before we do that, think about, do you need any amendments to add to the soil? In particular, do you need limestone? 
Uh, for acid soils, anybody that's that's below about a 6.5, I really would probably recommend an application of limestone. Uh, your soil test can help you de- determine if and how much limestone you may need. And that limestone helps to raise the pH, right? It adds, it can add some calcium, it can add some magnesium to the soil, both essential elements, uh, but that, that helps to raise the pH. And it's not an immediate thing. Using, using ag limestone, ground limestone, it takes a little time for that neutralization of acidity to, to happen, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 6 to 12 months. So, again, this is not something we we got the trees in the ground, and now we say, oh, the, the soil pH is too low. I'm going to add some lime. Well, we've already lost production. We've already lost potential growth by not having the soil uh pH corrected before all this, all the planting happened. Also think about the, the need for, for putting in some pre-plant fertilizer. You know, nitrogen, uh, we, can, we can always add that later. Nitrogen is mobile in the soil, so we can it, uh, put it on top of the ground, and with rainfall or irrigation, it can move down through the soil profile and in, into the rooting zone. But certain Certain nutrients, especially phosphorus, phosphorus is is very immobile in the soil, does not move readily through the soil. And so this is one, if we do have a, a low phosphorus reading or we think we may be deficient in phosphorus, this is where we go in ahead of time, put down some phosphorus fertilizer, incorporate that into the soil by disking or tilling or plowing or some other method, and then we're ready to put up our berms. Uh, think about potassium. Potassium is one nutrient. I mean, it's it's obviously extremely important. It's only second to nitrogen in importance for the for for growing plants in general, really, but especially for olives. Uh, think about potassium. If you've got a, a loose, coarse, sandy soil, potassium, uh, some people say, is, is fairly mobile through those uh, coarser, sandier soils. If you've got a heavier soil, I would certainly think about putting potassium down before. Uh, before uh, beds go up, while you're in the dirt work, uh, ground preparation stage. So think about uh, potassium and phosphorus needs. Uh, that could be just granular synthetic fertilizers, or you think about uh, perhaps you want to go organic, or maybe you're not even going organic, but you want to use some kind of soil amendment. So think about amendments also. Chicken manure, uh, cow manure, those are great sources of nutrients. They not only have nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, but they've got just about every other micronutrient that's needed by plants is also included in a in a manure type product or even a compost type product. So if you've got poor soil that does has low organic matter uh, and you want to improve that organic matter content, or if you have just low fertility, uh, think about some kind of organic amendment like manures or compost that can really help loosen up heavy soils. And it can really improve uh, lighter, sandier soils and help them actually hold more water and hold more nutrients. So this is the opportunity. While the dirt work is going on, this is your opportunity to get limestone put down, phosphorus, potassium especially. Uh, Think about compost products or maybe manure products as well. Third, put up berms. Talked about the reasoning for berms. Uh, This can be done in many different ways. Many types of equipment. Most people use what we call a levee plow. This is used in rice farming uh, to put up the berms. And we want to do this again uh, months in advance, uh, maybe even 12 months in advance, so that those berms have time to settle. When we're, when we're getting ready to plant, we sort of knock the top or the crown off of the, off of the berm to make a flat, 
flat level surface to plant the tree in. Irrigation, we're going to talk about more about next time. Trellising or stakes. Uh, a lot of orchards that were high density and established uh, in past years, a lot of those used trellises. I've talked to a lot of growers that said, yeah, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't have a trellis. I probably wouldn't go through the expense to establish a trellis. They like to use stakes instead to get the tree, uh, you know, just to provide some support for the tree while it's establishing. Uh, folks use uh, bamboo stakes or these uh, about one, one and a half inch diameter wooden stakes. Those seem to be sufficient. Of course, they all deteriorate and rot over time, but typically you get enough life out of them that by the time they are deteriorating and rotting, the tree is well established and can grow on its own uh, without support. I've talked about fencing and finally cover crops. Uh, this is just something to consider, uh, especially if you've got the ground bare and you've got the orchard site prepared, but you're not ready to plant for a few months yet or six, or six seven, eight months yet. Consider a cover crop. These things can help uh, with, with adding organic matter, adding nutrients to the soil. That all just improves the health of the soil. And, of course, we just would like to have some ground cover out there, uh, especially if you're in an area that gets rain or more rain. We'd like to have something holding the soil together to reduce erosion. Again, cover crops, all that. We could talk for days on all these things, but this is kind of the basics what you need to know. All right. It's been 30 minutes. Uh, I hope this was somewhat helpful. It's a lot of information, again, to think about, a lot of things to go through. We will, we will pick up in Episode 7 with this same chapter, and we'll finish talking about tree spacing, design of the orchard, irrigation systems, and uh, tree establishment. So that's next time, all right? Thanks for listening. You folks stay safe out there. Take care of those olive trees. Call me, text me, email me, send me smoke signals, whatever you got to do to get a hold of me. If you need help, you need advice, you need somebody to talk to about olives, uh, I'm here. I I work for you. So don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again. Y'all stay safe. Have a great day. And we'll see you next time when it's time for Growing Texas Olives.